1: Welcome back and happy Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. In the Arizona Republic this morning, Froma Harrop, a nationally syndicated columnist, condemns conservatives for ginning up the culture wars again and writes that it's all cheap politics and small beer. She reaches so far to criticize a writer from Commentary Magazine for mentioning a critical race theory piece that is some years old and from a little-known independent corporate trainer from somewhere in the Midwest. Her point, when you have to find really old and small things to find a grievance, your reach not only exceeds your grasp, but your grasp of the problem. You're nearly inventing it, she says. Come on, conservatives, get over this race stuff. It's no big deal, and it's not that widespread, she tells us. Find other wars to wage. What other wars we should fight, she does not tell us. But speaking for me, I think fighting for the notion that Thurgood Marshall fought for in the 1950s, and that we seem to have forgotten and turned around on is worth a fight. In two briefs, he wrote, quote, "...distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and invidious, that a state bound to defend the equal protection of the laws must not involve them in any public sphere. Classifications and distinctions based on race or color have no moral or legal validity in our society. They are contrary to our constitution and laws," Thurgood Marshall wrote. Would Miss Harrop have told Thurgood Marshall, then chief counsel at the NAACP, to quit quibbling about trifles? Perhaps Miss Harrop is unaware of the goings-on that are not quite so small here, after all. Perhaps she is unaware that the Smithsonian Museum this year dedicated an exhibit to understanding whiteness, complete with a lecture from a dedicated Marxist on the meaning of whiteness, which is to say, race, and complete with a guide on how to tell if someone is white or is influenced by white culture or even acting white. To remind, this gem from the Smithsonian came out of the National Museum of African American History. And before we go any further, just keep in mind the museum's charter was signed into law by a white man named George Bush. Quote, whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that White people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. That's how the Smithsonian lectured us this year. Continuing, quote, Whiteness is also at the core of understanding race in America. Whiteness and the normalization of white racial identity throughout America's history have created a culture where non-white persons are seen as inferior or abnormal. This white-dominant culture also operates as a social mechanism that grants advantages to white people since they can navigate society both by feeling normal and by being viewed as normal. Persons who identify as white rarely have to think about their racial identity because they live within a culture where whiteness has been normalized. Thinking about race is very different for non-white persons living in America. People of color must always consider their racial identity wherever the situation due to the systemic and interpersonal racism That still exists, close quote. Then they give us a chart, or did, a chart, a chart that shows you how to know whiteness. It includes beliefs in self-reliance, literally, not making this up. It includes the belief in rugged individualism. It includes belief in the nuclear family, helpfully explaining that 2.3 children is an example of whiteness, just in case you need a for instance, let's say, not making it up, emphasis on the scientific method is a sign of whiteness. Again, not making this up. You almost think we're entering Jeff Foxworthy territory here. You might just know you're white if you believe in hard work is the key to success and that work must come before play. That's in there too. Those are all on the chart. Honestly, truly, work before play. It's on the chart. How about this? Christianity is the norm, well, as I like to say, somebody better tell the King family, maybe Jesse Jack- Jackson and Al Sharpton too, all Christian reverence they might just be white after all. Or at least suffering from, as the Smithsonian puts it, whiteness. We were a country our National Museum thought needed a chart this year to identify whiteness. There were regimes once that made others wear yellow stars so you could know their ancestry. But yep. That's the comparison you deserve when you think ethnicity determines your humanity. Is that small and insignificant, Ms. Harrop? There's a lot of this going on. John Morofsky writes, In dramatic urgent language, K-12 schools across the country, both public and private, professed solidarity with Black Lives Matter and vowed to dismantle white supremacy as they scrambled to introduce anti-racist courses and remake themselves into racism-free zones. I have to pause and think about a school as a racist zone until this year. They are now considered racism-free zones. What were they before this year? Educators at the prestigious Brentwood College School in Los Angeles have made more changes to the curriculum this year than any other in the private school's nearly five-decade history. Teachers are introducing critical race theory, which views U.S. history through the prism of racial conflict, and assigning readings from Ibram Kendi, the academic and author who contends race-neutral policies, are the bulwark of the white ethnostate. The white ethnostate. That's what fifth graders get to learn about. I'm not even sure college students know what that is. I'd be happier if fifth graders could learn to read and write and add and subtract. Well, that's not important, evidently, not as important as understanding the white ethnostate. Studying the works of Ibram Kendi is more important, of course. He, by the way, is the professor who said you can't be against racism and a capitalist. So maybe traditional skills like reading, writing, and arithmetic just aren't important in Brentwood anymore or too many other places. Quote, while some view these recent shifts as indoctrination, we see them as opportunities for engagement. Brentwood's head of school, Mike Riera, wrote to families this fall, acknowledging the growing resistance from some parents. Will we overstep Will we overstep in some areas, he asks? Possibly. Will we understep in others? Possibly. Overstepping is okay in training about matters of race? We call this education now? Fabien Doucet, a New York University professor of early childhood education and urban education, said this momentum has been building for decades and the culture now appears primed to understand race in America from the moral perspective of the Black Lives Matter movement. Quote, sometimes you need to go too far to get there or else we might not go far enough, close quote, she said. I'm less anxious about overshooting than not ever getting there because the stakes are so high, she said. Again, you can't overshoot or go too far. Wow. I could point to a few examples in history where theories about race went too far. I might even point to our very present. It's not just individual schools, though. The National Education Association, the nation's largest labor union, has posted an entire page of BLM teaching resources, while the Black Lives Matter organization itself is also disseminating education materials. The NEA teaching themes include Justice for George Floyd Day, Transgender Day of Remembrance, Globalism and Collective Value, Queer Organizing Behind the Scenes, Unapologetically Black Day, and Student Activist Day. A link to social justice math used in Seattle public schools teaches data analysis and mathematical modeling through examples of police brutality and excessive uses of force. Quote, racism is perpetuated by silence and silence is complicity, one NEA teacher instruction reads. And being colorblind often serves as a pretense to downplay the significance of race, denying the existence of racism and erase the experience of students of color. We pause to note all of this was a storm coming for some time, but was triggered and accelerated, of course, by the death of George Floyd, a tragedy that to this day we don't know for certain was a racial event or not. But interestingly, is seen as a racial event at this moment only based on the antagonist's skin colors. If the same exact set of incidences happened with a black cop and George Floyd, there would be no BLM marches or riots. That should say something. No? Or if George Floyd were white and the cop black, there would be no BLM or, for that matter, WLM marches or riots. And that should say something. No? Again, we find ourselves running back to a very dangerous place, I think, where skin color alone determines everything. And in the name of all that, we destroy true education in the classrooms as well as in the public sphere including destroying the statues of men who said what I'm about to quote, a lesson I would use to replace every single thing the NEA and BLM movements are engaged in right now. May I quote? If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may of right enslave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he can enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color, then. The lighter having the right to enslave, the darker? Be careful. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly? You mean the whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it's a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well, and if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. That was Abraham Lincoln, perhaps our first culture warrior. And it wasn't about small and insignificant things. And neither is losing that argument again in today's culture. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Do, 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 do. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. A lot to do today. And happy birthday, William F. Buckley, Jr., uh, born on this date in 1925. We'll have something to do about that a little bit later in celebration. Although if you want to call in on uh, what he meant to you, I'd love that. I um, love talking about the birth of the modern conservative movement and his uh, midwifery of it. Is that the right use of that word? I hope so. Interesting thing you're noting in the news happening, and uh, interesting but not surprising, uh, over at uh, the main news networks, as Joe Biden is announcing his putative candidate picks, choices, prospective nominees, the reaction from Washington insider media political types is really kind of um it's kind of telling so Andrea Mitchell over at NBC News says well this is a non political team they're not going to be political a big change from the Trump administration uh what's her name over at CBS the political uh news uh political news uh correspondent over Martha Raddatz at CBS said these are humble, lifelong public servants, non-political. <laughs> just amazing to me that they think they can just say non-political with a straight face. Um, Mark Bauerlein, frequent guest of ours, professor at Emory, gets it right. He says this is the presumption of liberals. We aren't political. We're just intelligent, clear-sighted, evidence-based. And the really remarkable thing is they actually believe it. Um, Matt Peterson says, in a deeper sense, Trump was the return or promise of actual politics again because the ruling class seeks technocratic cover. I don't think we've seen the start of the counter-revolution quite just yet. But this is, this is how you get away with or at least describe the framing of the mind – that can engage in censorship of us without the blink of an eye that can um call us the most extreme forms of political ideologue from history without the blink of an eye which can treat republicans and conservatives uh with such bias because to them we are biased and they are not to them we are outside the mainstream and they define and occupy it fully, the mainstream. To them, to be a Republican is either to be something close to an idiot, something close to an extremist, or an idiot and an extremist. To them, Biden represents a return to some kind of normal definition of what the center is. To them, conservatism and Trump, of course, and Republicans, we're all, all of us, conspiracy, conspirators, we're all, all of us, um, QAnon, we're all, all of us, Proud Boys, we're all, all of us, KKK. My gosh, they march calling all of us that. They do. And it's an. Insight into where the media is. That's why they can get away with saying this is a non-political, humble, lifelong set of public servants. Um, what, was, what, was, what was our cabinet? What was Donald Trump's cabinet? These guys weren't in it for public service? They weren't humble? Has anyone been more humble in the world than Ben Carson, a man who has a right not to be have you ever seen a more humble public servant? Have you ever seen a more humble public servant than Mike Pence? I mean, have you ever? These these um, this this is the tell of the media. They, they just think they're above it all. And this, by the way, debate or point, I should say, illustrates the debate about covid. If you agree with them. That's science. If you are an M.D., a Ph.D., or a scientist who has a different point of view, it's not science. It's denial or trutherism or, again, worthy of being censored. I'll get to all that in a bit. Heather MacDonald wrote. And, you know, I think she started the writing on COVID from a skeptical eye. And she. I hope it's not the last thing she writes on it. I hope it's the need for the last thing she needs to write on it. She this afternoon published the single greatest piece since March by anyone on COVID. And I'm going to read it to you in a little bit. But before I do, get this. It's kind of interesting. I said yesterday, I've said before, when you think about all we're up against, it's amazing. A conservative or a Republican is ever elected to anything. It's always harder for us conservatives because we're always pushing against something. The Media Research Center conducted a pretty large poll here in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Percent of voters who were unaware of the Biden sexual assault allegations, 35.4%. Percent... Of Biden voters who were unaware of the Hunter Biden scandal, 45.1 percent percent of Biden voters who knew Kamala Harris was the most left wing United States senator, 25 percent percent knew that economic growth had achieved 33 percent percent who were unaware, 49 percent, percent unaware that we had created 11.1 million jobs, 39 percent, percent unaware of the Middle East peace deals, 43 percent, percent unaware that the U.S. had become energy independent, 50 percent. That Middle East peace deal thing is interesting to me. Forty three point five percent of voters, Biden voters, were unaware of them at all we unaware of the Middle East peace deals. Now you know why when Nancy Pelosi was asked about them, she said they were a distraction. Move along, move along. Nothing to see here. Five percent of Biden voters said if they knew of the Middle East peace deals, they would have voted the other way. How do you like that? We're up against a lot, folks. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 34 after the hour means it's time for a culture and economy update with John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. Grandcanyonplanning.com is his website. It's only Tuesday, John. Doesn't it feel like it's Friday, it Thursday, sure does. something it's like that? So much going on. There's a lot going on.
0: <laughs> hey, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, yesterday. This was uh, JFK who had passed away, and, and you said, of course, CL Lewis died on that day as well. Right. Uh, And Tracy, my wife, she was listening in the car uh, yesterday as we were speaking, and she said she was yelling at the phone. She says there's one day that she knows that someone overshadowed someone else who passed away, and that was the day that Michael Jackson
1: died. Oh.
0: There was someone else who died on that day, and that was uh, June 25th of
1: 2009. Uh Uh-huh.
0: And it was Farrah Fawcett died the same day are you kidding me no so Tracy was yelling at the same no John she's going, John sit, talk about wow. that so I just I guess I didn't know that yeah so but that was a big deal obviously. yeah it sure Michael was Jackson died and and nothing else at that point yeah you know, that was the news of, of
1: the year Wow obviously. yeah wow well now we know what you're gonna do on June 9th for this day yeah. in history <laughs> <laughs> so, well actually so that was today, helpful on November 24th. What was that? <laughs> Give me something helpful. <laughs> for November November 24th. 24th. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, Jack Ruby yeah, course, killed Lee Harvey course, Oswald. Of course. Today. Yeah. Right. That was, that was seen amazing. live on television. Yes, My gosh. Yes. Can you imagine uh, the, the reeling of yeah. what we went through in no. those three days oh between uh, the Kennedy assassination and that just yes. tremendous, tremendous uh, throws? You
0: one know? other quick one. Then we do have a lot to talk about uh, the origins of. The Origin of Species uh, by uh, Charles Darwin was published, uh, and that was back in eighteen. I think it was eighteen forty-four on this day.
1: Wow! Yeah, yeah. was that so, today too? That was
0: today as well. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, so changed the father, debate the in America. of evolution,
1: right? Yeah. To d- 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 change the debate in the West, I should yes. say for, forever. Oh my gosh!
0: All right, we got to okay. talk about this thirty thousand thing. Yeah, Dow bre- breached the thirty thousand points today. Uh, Amazing. When you think about back uh, during the initial phases of the pandemic, back in March into April, the Dow dropped from, we were very close to 30,000 at the time, and it dropped all the way down to almost 18,000, worked its way back uh, and broke above. So this is an all-time record for the Dow today. Uh, up four hundred and fifty-four points. Uh, two huge,
1: two huge peaks. Really on, on 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 this administration's watch. Early on in seventeen, we hit twenty thousand, didn't right. we? That's right. We, we broke the twenty thousand level as well. Yeah.
0: No, you're right, Seth. I mean, it's been an amazing run, and the president did. Uh, he spoke very briefly. I saw a little blurb mm-hmm. uh, mentioning that the markets again broke through thirty thousand, which uh, is pretty darn amazing. What a recovery! It and again, it just shows that uh, a reminder of uh, you know. How strong the economy really is for – or I should say companies are doing well, whether the economy and certain people obviously are feeling the pain of what's happening. But, boy, businesses are finding a way, and this is the ingenuity of, of the uh, – you know, of our, our corporations out there to find ways to still uh, show a profit and to uh, you know, have great performance in their, in their stock
1: and and i guess you know we have to think about it cuz sometimes people say well that's just the stock market mm-hmm. but the stock market covers something like 70% of americans doesn't yeah, well, it yeah
0: mo- yeah most people some have 401ks or, another. Ks or yeah. they have investments in, of some type you know and another one here is tesla hit uh, the 500 billion market right. cap right. and this of course they got um uh, they're going to be moving into the S&P 500, so this is driving the stock higher. This puts Elon Musk into number two position as the richest man in the world right one, now. One is Bezos, I'm guessing? One is Bezos, okay. now two is Musk, and third is uh, Bill Gates. Oh. So, uh, wow, what a, what a rise he has had uh, this year alone with the amount of growth in the stock, and he owns so much of that, of course. Yeah. That's really driven him to these new heights. Yeah. Imagine growing your net worth over $100 billion in less than a year. Yeah, that's an incredible it's, thing. It's an incredible <laughs> thing. It doesn't happen every day.
1: Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. And maybe we need to listen more to things he has to say. You know, it's interesting who Americans right. listen to. Certainly Bill Gates, certainly Jeff Bezos, certainly Warren Buffett. Um, it seems there's a little bit of a polar. or a a curbing or a cribbing of things that uh, Elon Musk says. But I think maybe we ought to start listening to him a little bit more. So this,
0: this also should be a lesson to those out there who maybe panicked and sold yep. their positions. Yep. And now we're seeing uh, all of the indexes breaking new highs nice today. Nice point. So, Need to be working closely with your advisor to make sure that you don't do things that can really uh, affect your
1: overall returns long-term. Help you navigate those yeah. uh, mm-hmm. yeah, those roads. Thank you, John Dombrowski. You
0: bet. Securities and Advisory Services, Officer Client One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and TIPIC, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Go to grandcanyonplanning.com, schedule your
1: appointment. Thanks, guys. You bet. Talk Bye-bye. to you soon. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. One of the advantages of um of uh, inter- uh audio audio file audio uh, sites on the internet is that you can go back and see the greats and hear the greats. I mentioned earlier it's William Buckley's birthday today. He would have been 95 past a few years back. And it's one thing for people to say something about him. It's another to go back and see what he did on so many fronts, from the book writing to the debating to the lecturing to the hosting of his firing line TV show to the syndicated columns. The, out, the, the, the outpouring of work was just enormous and the body of work is enormous. And, you know, I think a lot of young conservative writers once upon a time aspired to be like him. You can't. That that comes once in in a, in a lifetime if you're lucky, someone with that kind of um, that kind of skill and dedication and ability and and the whole the whole package really. But in an effort to celebrate him and to remind you of, you know, what a great he was, I thought I would share just some of his conclusion from the Great Panama Canal debate where he and Ronald Reagan in 1978, along with their teams, debated each other. Reagan was against the Panama Canal Treaty. William Buckley was for it. I was reading a review of it in the Washington Post, January 15, 1975. The writer, Ward Sinclair, says, on the left, surprise, is William F. Buckley Jr., tongue darting, eyebrows running amok, arguing the case for Senate approval. On the right, jaw jutting, hair slicked down, and California tan is Ronald Reagan, arguing against approval of the treaties. Now, one of the things I have to say about this is everyone knew Ronald Reagan wanted to run for president again in 1980. A lot of people didn't know if he had it, if he could, if his time hadn't come and gone and if he was maybe aging out a little bit. He would have been about 66 or 67 at the time. And his performance against William Buckley, meeting him pretty much spar for spar, punch for punch, without notes, either of them, convinced people that Ronald Reagan did have what it would take for 1980. But here's Buckley in his closing, no notes, just doing what he does best, just a little of it, a little nostalgia, and a little happy birthday, Mr. Buckley.
2: Mr. Chairman, Governor Reagan, no notes. Uh, James Thurber once said, he said, you know, uh, women are ruling the world, and the reason they're ruling the world is because they have so insecure a knowledge of history. He said, I I found myself sitting next to a a lady on an airplane the other day who all of a sudden turned to me. And she said, why did we have to pay for Louisiana when we got all the other states free? (laughs) So he said, I I explained it to her. He said, "Um, Louisiana was owned by two sisters called Louisa and Ann Wilmot. And they offered to give it to the United States, provided it was named after that, after them. That was the Wilmot proviso. <laughs> but General Win- but uh, President Winfield Scott refused to do that. That was the Dred Scott decision. <laughs> <laughs> and she, said, uh, uh, she said, well, that's... Uh, <laughs> that- I said that's all very well, but I still don't understand why we had to pay for Louisiana Purchase. Now, in intending no slur on my friend Ronald Reagan, the politician in America I admire most, his rendition of recent history and his general and generalities remind me a little bit about that explanation for the state of Louisiana having been incorporated into this country. He says, we in fact don't negotiate under threats. And everybody here bursts out in applause. The trouble with that is that it's not true. We do negotiate under threats. 99% of all the negotiations that have gone on from the beginning of this world have gone on as a result of threats. As a result of somebody saying, As a result somebody saying, "If you don't give me a raise, I threaten to leave my job." That Pause it there threat. for a
1: second. This was one of Buckley's great traits: is examining the common or the conventional that is said in a debate. He would he would incisively pick apart every little thing that you said if it was if it had if it had the potential to be argued or wrong. You know, most people would say, "Okay, we don't we don't." Um, we don't, we don't negotiate with terrorists, we don't negotiate under threats, and it would just pass it by and no one would really examine it. Someone like Buckley never let those kinds of conventional statements go. That was part of his great skill as a debater. But go on just a little more.
2: What, what do you call what we did to George III? It was a most convincing threat. The fact of the matter is that there are people in Panama who don't accept the notion of Governor Reagan about the undisputed, unambiguous sovereignty that the United States exercises over that territory. In 1948, the Supreme Court of the United States, in a decision of Amelia Brown versus Connell, made the following reference, quote, admittedly, Panama is territory over which we do not have sovereignty. 1948. In 1928, uh, in the Luckenbach Steam Company uh, case, the canal zone was referred to by the Supreme Court uh, as a, 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 a canal zone as a place in which there were foreign ports. William Howard Taft said to Panama that we had, quote, not the slightest interest in colonizing. Uh, we, Dollar, said to the United Nations, uh, in 1946, Panama is sovereign, In 1936, we reaffirmed the titular sovereignty of Panama. Americans born of foreign parents in Panama don't become uh, Americans. The Supreme Court in 1948 said that admittedly territory over which we do not have sovereignty in a reference to Panama. We do have there the absolute right, which I do not deny and which my colleagues do not deny, to stay there as long as we want. But to say that we have sovereignty, as Governor Reagan has said, uh, is to belie the intention of the people who supervised our diplomacy in the early part of the century. And it is also to urge people to believe that we harbor an appetite for colonialism, which we shrink from, having ourselves declared in the Declaration of Independence Principles that were not only applicable to people fortunate enough to be born in Massachusetts or in Connecticut or in New York or in Virginia, but people born everywhere.
1: It's a pleasure to listen all- to someone, someone like that, isn't it? It's, and it's a different, different level of dialogue, debate, and rhetoric. That I think we should long for and try and replicate as best we possibly can. But to say we miss him, we have to understand what it is that we miss. And it's that. It's that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Just one last thing from William Buckley, and then I'll move on to some other stuff we have for you here today. Um, This was a part of his closing that also was classic, and someone reminded me I really ought to play this part of it. William Buckley's closing in his Panama Canal debate, then I have a, a final thought on it, and then, um, then I want to move into what Heather mcdonald has been up to, which is an amazing amount. Here's Buckley from his closing.
2: I think that Governor Reagan put his finger on it when he said, the reason this treaty is unpopular is because we're tired of being pushed around. We were pushed out of Vietnam because we didn't have the guts to go in there and do it right. Just <laughs> as Admiral McCain right. said. <laughs> yeah. We are pre- prepared, as it was said, to desert Taiwan because three and a half Harvard professors think that we ought to normalize our relations with Red China. <laughs> uh, we, we are prepared to allow 16 semi savage countries to cartelize uh, the oil uh, that is indispensable to the entire industrial might of the West because we don't have a diplomacy that's firm enough to do something about it. And therefore, how do we get our kicks? How do we get our kicks? By saying no to the people of Panama. I say...
1: <laughs> Pretty clever what he's doing there. Keep going.
2: I, I say that when, 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 I, when I am in a mood to say no representing the United States, I want to be looking the Soviet Union in the face and say no to the Soviet Union next time it wants to send its tanks running over students who want a little freedom in Czechoslovakia. I want to say uh, no to uh, China when, when it subsidizes genocide in Cambodia on a scale that has not been known in this century rather than simply forget that it exists. I don't want to feel that the United States has to affirm its independence by throwing away its powers to distinguish, by saying we, we must not distinguish between the intrinsic merits of rewriting the treaty in Panama uh, and pulling out of Taiwan because it is all a part of the same syndrome.
1: Yeah, that's, um, that's, the, that's the Buckley, uh, all of the Buckley, uh, a part of all of the Buckley that we missed. I remember we did a, um, when I was with Bill Bennett, a show, we did a tribute to him on his passing, 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. And we opened it up to callers asking what their memories of Bill Buckley was. I'll never forget the trucker. Called in and said, first time I saw him on TV, I could hardly understand a thing he was saying, but I knew I wanted to. And thus I subscribed to his magazine. I'll never forget that. I could hardly understand a thing he was saying, but I knew I wanted to. So I've got a lot of wisdom in recognizing that kind of wisdom. And that's why Buckley himself was so comfortable saying he'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston phone directory than the first thousand names in the Harvard faculty directory. Think of the last president who represented that. Well, he's the current one. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.